Welcome to For the Love of Yoga. In this podcast series, we explore yoga in all of its deepest dimensions. May these words nourish you. So remember, in yoga, we don't like beliefs or dogmas or concepts. The idea is you cannot think yourself out of a prison made of thoughts. Therefore, no philosophy or no belief will end suffering. Only practice and realization can end suffering. The Buddha had this beautiful quote. He said, do not confuse the finger pointing at the moon with the moon itself. So the disclaimer is that this evening we'll be talking some philosophy, but it is ultimately the finger pointing at the moon. Our theory must inform our practice, but it is only our practice that will turn knowledge into wisdom. So that being said, um, we've got some newcomers to class today. So that being said, it's an open debate. Um, feel free to pause me at any time and question any assumptions I might have. Because, you know, every now and then someone might say, we're all one man, you know, you go to Burning Man or something and you meet a hippie and they're like, we're all one man. And then they're on the 405 or the highway and they're cussing at everyone else. And obviously that concept hasn't made its way into the very cells of the being. So concepts and beliefs don't help. So that being said, if something is to be true, it must be true for you. It must be true in your experience. So therefore, I'm going to try as far as possible to appeal to that, but stop me where I don't. So let's start. Today, we're going to talk about um, meditation, what it's for, and why it might not be working for some people. But before that, just a little preamble. Um, yes, of course, and I'll keep the chat open, so I'll see it. No problem. Okay, so let's start by defining the problem. In yoga, this is an important point. In yoga, the world exists independently of us, but not in the way that it appears. Rather, I might say the world is not perceived. It is inferred, created, and projected. So to kind of explain that, think of the event of looking at, let's say, an apple on a desk, and you're looking at the apple. Now, there's a belief that your eyes are perceiving the apple. But in yoga philosophy, that's not actually what we think is going on. Rather, we think there's some occurrence out there in the world that's causing some chemical and electrical effect in the eyes and the retina. And that electrical effect makes its way to the mind, which in yoga is called manas. When it arrives at the mind, that's when we commit, so to speak, the act of perception. The mind receives electrical signals and assigns not just the word apple or the meaning apple or the judgment, oh, I like apples, but also the very image of apple. Now, this is an important point. That means appleness or the existence of an apple on a table is not out there. It's in here. So another way I could phrase that is suppose you are sitting next to a carpenter. The carpenter spent her whole life working with tables and chairs and knows everything about wood and the grain and all that stuff. So you're sitting next to a carpenter and both you and her are looking at a table. The table that you see are very different tables. She's noticing the grain and all sorts of things. And to you, it's just a table, you know, not to presume that we have no carpenters with us, but it's a rather niche profession. So I promise it's not a Jesus reference and it could be if you want. But anyway, um, that being said, that's easy to understand. So on a psychological level, it's kind of easy. We all know we have friends and we go out to a party and we experience different parties or we go and we don't see the same movie or we both read the same book, but we remember different parts of it. Um, you might notice that when you go to a party and it's very loud and someone calls your name, suddenly you're able to hear it. Suddenly your reality has shifted or your mind is able to pick out that name amidst all the chorus of sounds subconsciously. So at the very least, we can appreciate that there is some system that's filtering our experiences um, or streamlining them. In yoga, we go one step further and we say the mind is actually conjuring up 
the reality that you see around you. It's the beliefs that you have that are projecting out this reality. So that's an important point. Not to say that there is no reality. Um, we don't descend into solipsism with the idea that we are all there is. There is a reality out there, and we call it prakriti or nature. But to the yogi, this reality doesn't resemble the one that's being projected out by my preconceived belief. So the act of yoga, that is the practice of yoga, can really be summarized as trying to get more and more in touch with reality. Another way to frame that, the practice of yoga is the task of more and more unconditioning ourselves or reprogramming ourselves from all the beliefs that have been coded into not just our brains, but also our DNA. So in our brains or our cultural makeup, we've been we've inherited certain beliefs like, oh, money equals happiness, or these are the ideals of beauty that we must abide by. All these psychological constructs, sure, we buy into them as a consequence of our cultural um, birth lottery. But deeper than that, there is also programming in each of our cells, in our very DNA, creating, for instance, a scarcity mentality, creating a fear of death, creating the tendency to identify with the body and with the mind. So yoga then is not just the practice of changing the mind. It's a physiological transformative system that works on the DNA. It works on the very infrastructure of the body. So that being said, meditation is the central practice to create this holistic transformation. So let's go to step two. If this world is projected out then our suffering too does not exist in the world. It exists in the way we are perceiving the world. It exists in our mind. So the Buddha made a very important point. In this life, there are two ways to suffer. One, by not getting what you want. So if you want stuff and you don't get it, that's obviously going to be very painful. You'll feel anxiety. You'll be working to try to get it. Life's a struggle to try to get it. Um, And he said that's one way to be unhappy. The second way to be unhappy, the Buddha said, is by getting what you want. So this is the paradox. Because say you get what you want, suddenly three things can happen. One, you lose it. There's pain. Two, there is fear of losing it. Since you know that in this world, nothing is permanent, you have this memory of transiency. So you always feel this anxiety that even if you have it good, it might not always be good. So you struggle to keep it that way. Thirdly, and this is perhaps the most tragic, you find that it doesn't fulfill you in the way that you thought it would. So therein lies the rub, the Buddha might say. There's no way to win. Um, You get what you want. There's fear of loss. There's lack of fulfillment. You don't get what you want. There's a struggle to go and get it, only to perhaps find out that you're going to lose it or it doesn't fulfill you. So when the Buddha says suffering, he doesn't necessarily mean physical pain or political oppression or suffering in the way you and I understand it. The word in Sanskrit is dukkha. It's the same word in Pali. And dukkha means actually uncomfortable space. Ka means space. Du means bad. So it kind of means like, Uh, this is not quite rightness. That's what the Buddha meant by suffering. We all feel it. We might have, uh, you know, we might have worked really hard to have all the circumstances of our life line up exactly. You know, so our health might have been perfect. Our relationships are perfect. Our finances are perfect. And it's a struggle to get everything there. Once it was all there, though, suddenly there was a feeling that maybe there's more to this life than just this. And now that's the reason we're all here, um, practicing yoga, attending philosophy lectures, because we feel intuitively that there must be more to all of this than bank balances and internships. There must be more than this game that we're playing. For some of us, we've only got a glimpse. um, And that's all you need. All you need is that glimpse to start the search. So the Buddha said his first rule was that life is suffering. That's just going to happen. Then he identified the root of suffering. He said, suffering is caused by desire. So that's the Buddha's understanding. He says, it's because you're attached to things, because you crave things, because you want things, that you ultimately become restless. So in the Buddha's perception, your natural state is one of peace. You're peacefully sitting, you're perfectly content, but it's your desire that moves you into a world of suffering. So the Buddha says, life is suffering, desire is the cause of suffering, Then he says, ah, there is a way out of suffering. 
So we're all familiar with the French philosophers, the existentialists of the 20th century, who came to this realization, they're like, ah, c'est la vie, c'est mal, it's suffering, it's painful, life sucks, let's smoke cigarettes and think about suicide tonight. You know, that's the whole French ethic um, in the 20th century. We've got Camus and we've got Sartre just scowling. You know, you can see them scowling and feeling very smug about this realization, like, ah, I've hacked it. So the extent to which those philosophies have gone is to say, we might be in a meaningless world. And so we'll just have to get on with it and make some meaning out of it. Um, There's nothing for it, guys. Now, Buddha takes one extra step. He says, yes, you're right. Life is suffering. Desire is suffering. But there is a way out of suffering. So the Buddha's promise to you is that he's going to give you a way to get out. So what's that way? The fourth noble truth, and we call these the four noble truths. So the fourth noble truth is his method, the Buddha's yoga. So now where Buddhism and yoga differentiate is that they are both, first of all, the similarity is that they are both practice-oriented method cultures. So they're not interested in grandiose claims about reality. They're really not interested in giving you beliefs or dogmas. They don't like authority figures. Now, never mind the way that these cultures have degenerated and turned into religious structures, but at its essence, dogma wasn't part of it. Now, um, the famous thing, and I'm getting a question here, what about suffering from traumatic experiences or failure? Exactly. You can name a million flavors of suffering in this life. You're really creative about it. Um, Now, the Buddha, this is funny. The Buddha was once asked, um, what happens after death? Or do gods exist? Or do angels exist? According to legend, there were 16 questions that the Buddha refused to answer. Now, the Buddha is a debater. This is a fellow who loved to travel all across North India having arguments with people. Like he would go to a village and he'd be like, do you realize your life is suffering? And the farmer would go, the fuck you talking about, bro? And he would sit down with him and explain it. He was a bit of a party pooper in that way. You can imagine. <laughs> but I mean, you know, before the Buddha, there wasn't this articulation. He used to like to argue. So he was a very verbose gentleman, right? But there were 16 things that he wouldn't answer. And those were 16, quote unquote, metaphysical speculations about the nature of reality. The reason he wouldn't discuss them, like whether gods existed or whether whatever, was because they weren't important for you to know in order to escape suffering. Um, He even called the end of suffering nirvana. He described nirvana, and the word in Sanskrit means to blow out, meaning to end. To end what? To end suffering. What then? He said, go and find out for yourself. He didn't want to tell you what nirvana was. He only wanted to tell you what it was not. So you wouldn't create a kind of concept out of it. You'd have to go and experience it, you know? So these 16 questions are called the 16 noble silences of the Buddha. Um, Things that weren't important to know. Um, And his metaphor was this. If you were shot by a poison arrow and you went to the doctor, the doctor was about to pull the arrow out. But right before she did, you paused and said, wait, wait, wait. I have a few questions. What poison was used in the arrow? What angle did the arrow enter my body? What was the name of the archer that shot the arrow? You know, all these things, you wouldn't be asking that because you would just want the arrow removed. So that's the Buddha's point. He says, don't get too caught up in the intellectual stuff. That can be fun. That can be alluring, but it's just another way to suffer. You know, so that's the Buddha's warning. Now, that's what the Buddhist Buddhist philosophy and yoga have in common. They're a method-based philosophy. The differences, though, is that the Buddha's root cause of suffering is desire. In yoga, the root cause of suffering is ignorance. You suffer because you don't really know who you are. You mistake yourself to be something you're not, and thereby you suffer. So let's think about what this means. I'm going to try to move you beyond your body, mind, and personality. So this is going to be an argument that should create some kind of reaction in the intuition. So follow along. Let's see if we can do this. I have three separate arguments for you for this effect. The first one, can we all agree that for there to be an act of seeing, the seen and the seer must be two different things? There must be an object to be seen, and there must be a subject to see. So far, so good. The seer and the seen must be two different things. Otherwise, there couldn't be this relationship known as seeing. 
there must be a subject and an object, and they must be different. Secondly, the subject is more, uh, more you than the object. Is that okay? So maybe like I'll try the eyes. The eyes are looking at the apple. The apple is the object and the eyes are the subject. The eyes are seeing and the apple is being seen. So the eyes are the seer, right? So you know that the, the seer and the seen are two different things. So you know that you are the apple. You know the apple is the other. So far, so good, right? The apple is the object. You are the subject. But check this. We can go further. The mind can view the eyes in its act of seeing. So one degree of reflection later, the eyes become the object, the mind becomes the subject. Do you see what happened there? You are no longer your eyes. You're no longer your organs of perception. You're no longer your body. You are the mind perceiving the body. Ah, but wait, when you meditate deeply, you start to realize you're not even the mind. You are the awareness behind the mind, perceiving the mind. Therefore, through this argument, you can realize logically that the mind is the object and you are the subject. So neither are you your body, nor are you your mind. You are that which witnesses both. So you might say, okay, okay, well and good, well and good. I understand this logic. But when someone pinches me, I'm going to say, ow, bro. Like, obviously, I'm the body, you know? And no, the reason you feel that pain is because you believe yourself to be the body. Now, if I, Nish, believed, you know, not I, Nish, but this small boy who calls himself Nish, if Nish believed himself to be a great guitar player, like that's something he identifies with, um, and he goes out into the world and he plays a shitty show, that's going to cause him suffering. Because he's created this idea about himself, Nish is a great guitar player. And then he goes and plays a show and it's not in line with his reality, causes pain. So much of our suffering is us fighting with reality, trying to negotiate between actuality and our kind of projected realities. Yes, egoic pain, precisely. So this whole ego thing, this idea of the small self or the false self is that ego. Now, that suffering comes from a a failure to correctly identify with who you really are. So when you meditate, the goal of meditation then is to actually internalize this truth. So it's not enough to hear it. It's good to hear it. There must, and there are three methods they say for yoga philosophy, mahalo, mahalo. Some questions from the phone, but there are three um, uh, parts of this process. The first is shravana, meaning to listen. So first you listen to this philosophy. Second, mananas, which is to contemplate it, meaning to kind of dwell on it and reflect on it, try to make sense of it in your own kind of understanding. And three, nididhyasana. This is the most important. Nididhyasana, which in Sanskrit kind of translates into the English internalize. So you must internalize it. I promise you that if you are able to internalize this truth, that you are not your mind and you are not your body, you will be be beyond all suffering. Because after all, suffering only comes to the mind, only comes to the body. If you firmly realize that you are not your body, death will seem like nothing but a change of clothes. And you don't freak out when you change your clothes. That's the crazy thing. When you change your clothes, I mean, I, I used to play in a rock band. We used to change our clothes like three, day, three times a day. You know, we're very into that whole like 70s rock thing, um, the fashion. And, you know, as much as you liked the clothes because they expressed something more integral to you, they were an expression, they were an art form, they weren't you. So ultimately, if you change the, the clothes, thank you, thank you. If you change the clothes and you give them to like Goodwill or something, you don't feel that big a sense of loss. Maybe small loss, but not that big because you know that wasn't you. Similarly, if you can internalize that you are not the body and not the mind, then you have nothing to lose. Now, this is called the witness or the sakshi, that witnessing consciousness. Now, you might ask, isn't this an incredibly cold and uh, uh, detached way to live life? If you kind of were one step removed from everything happening, wouldn't life lose its luster? And in response to this, we can say no, because you have had that experience 
in Shavasana when you come to a yoga class. So not to presume anybody's like Hatha yoga background, but many people in Western society have come to a yoga class um, and done the postures of yoga, the asana. And after about two, sorry, I wish it was two, but an hour, you know, 20 minutes later, they're pooped. They've done all the postures, ego, all that stuff. And then they're lying there in corpse pose. And that's usually the moment where people get hooked. Because when they're lying there, their body is totally wiped out. Their mind is totally still. They, for a moment, go beyond the body, go beyond the mind and become the witness. So they slip into that meditative state and it is a bliss far beyond any kind of transient pleasure in the world. So things in the world are nice, like the taste of chocolate, you know, all that's nice. But it's child stuff when it comes to the bliss of being in that state. So they say the yogi is not against pleasure. They're just against small pleasures, small pleasures that get in the way of bigger pleasures. Ultimately, this is a path of bliss. The king of the yogis, Shiva, which is the Hindu god kind of symbolizing a lot of that. And remember the Hindu gods, we, in yoga, we don't actually think they exist. They don't actually, you know, they're, they're not out there like watching you and doing a Santa Claus too good good naughty list or anything. They're just metaphors. They're symbols, you know, uh, the every man or the every woman or the every person you can imagine. So the king of the yogis, Shiva, and, you know, it's good to see an image when you have the chance, but the fella, he's like sitting in lotus pose. He's in lotus pose and he's just blissed out. He's the king of trance, the king of divine bliss. His hair is all over the place. And he's usually like kind of depicted dancing, you know, because he's just in this whirlwind of ecstasy. And it's an ecstasy beyond all kind of mortal joys. So in that sense, the question of whether life becomes detached, it's a resounding no, but you have to go and see for yourself. That being said, what is pleasure but an attempt to escape the body and the mind? Every kind of biting into the chocolate, every orgasm, every like music piece, all that stuff, it for a few moments obliterates your sense of ego or false self. You forget who you are. You forget that you have a body and you are one with the pleasure. So a pleasure at its best is able to draw you into the present moment. And by drawing you into the here and now, it draws you out of this personality nonsense. Now, here's an important point. Your personality depends on your consciousness of the past and your consciousness of the future. So you have to kind of have this like memory um, and an expectation for you to have a personality. If we took away all the memory and if we took away all the expectations for the future, you wouldn't really have a chance to get your bearings or kind of organize yourself into an individual. Now notice that most of our suffering comes from just that sort of thing. When suffering comes in the form of memory, it appears as guilt, trauma, complex, resentment. When it comes in the form of expectation, it appears as anxiety, fear. So being in time, being conscious of the past and being conscious of the future is to suffer. If you can escape time by coming into the here and now, you also escape your traumas, you escape your complexes, you escape your anxieties and you escape your fears. So all pleasures are a veiled attempt to meditate because all meditation does is take you out of time and into the here and now, into the body, into the breath, into the moment. That so too with pleasure. So the yogi, many, many lives before, started off as a hedonist. That's a profound part of wisdom when you realize like, actually, I'm not going to climb the corporate ladder. I'm going to go to Vegas. That's a beautiful act of freedom. You know, to go, I'm going to live for me and I'm going to have pleasure. But here's the rub. Um, There are three problems with pleasure. One, it's incredibly short-lived. Even the best orgasm, few seconds at best, you know, hungry for it again. So it's short-lived. Two, you build a threshold to the pleasure. So whatever pleasure it might be, whatever your, you know, uh, pick your potion, pick your poison, whatever pleasure it might be, sooner or later, you need more and more refinements of those things. Like the drug trip is probably one of the best um, ways to understand this point, but anything, you know, like chocolate, video games, whatever, there's a threshold and soon um, you're kind of desensitized. Three, because of the first two, pleasure sets up um, this insatiable need to acquire more. 
It's quick. You need more and more quantities. So you end up um, becoming restless for new pleasures or more pleasures. And you can do this for a while until it starts to wear on you. Until the pursuit of pleasure or the overindulgence in pleasure start to create painful imbalances in the body that in the future prevent said pleasure. So you can imagine someone eating a lot of chocolate and maybe harming their health and no longer being able to enjoy chocolate because, you know, they have something going on. Um, so that being said, pleasure is, 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 a, is an opportunity to obliterate the self. I think even the French call um, the orgasm les petits morts, the little death, which I think is so apt, the little death. Because in that moment, there's oblivion and you crave it. You crave that oblivion. So in yoga, we're saying, let's continue with that pleasure trip. Um, yes, and the, that's kind of like dopamine addiction. Yes, we get so much dopamine for video games that we lose motivation for things that will help us in the long run, precisely. Or like the addiction to information, like scrolling, you know, there's a hit and we're into that hit. But sooner or later, we, we hit a point where we're like, this just isn't doing it for us. So thankfully, every pleasure, every egoic motivation has an inbuilt self-destruct mechanism. How beautiful. For everyone everywhere, maybe in this life, maybe in the next, and we'll keep reincarnation for next Monday or something. Um, but that, there will be a point when you kind of wake up, when you go, oh my God, I've been doing this for a while and it's really not doing it for me. You know, you're, the chocolate bars come into the mouth and you're like, we've done this before. We've been here. It's not going to do it, you know? And it takes many, many repetitions before you realize this at the core of your being. You can be in this hamster wheel for a long time, and a lot of us are. The Buddhists call this samskara, um, which literally means going around in circles or the wheel of birth and death. And you'll notice like every relationship, it's just like the previous one. The patterns are repeating, you know? We tend to date the same people, end up in the same situation, and we're all like, how is this? Why does this keep happening to us? And we think that it's happening to us. Like somehow the external world is doing it. But like we talked about in the beginning of class, there is no external world. There's, there is no spoon, right? It's like coming, it's being shot out of us from our perceptions. So that being said, this suffering, this pleasure doesn't do it. So what does do it? Now we arrive to the meat of today's lecture, which is meditation. So meditation is the way out of suffering. And let me explain how. So I think we've already, you know, the last 30 minutes got enough of the details to explain what meditation is, what it's trying to do in the sense that it's trying to take you out of time, trying to bring you into the present, and most of all, trying to get you to move beyond the mind and body so that you can experience deeper and deeper levels of bliss um, and realization. So it's a matter of identity, really. Meditation is the process of internalizing your true identity as the witness of the mind and the body. So what is this meditation business? How did it come about? Who invented it? And why might it not be working for some people? So uh, with that uh, said, the oldest artifact uncovered in the um, material, uh, material archaeology of ancient India is called the Pashupati seal. Now, it was uncovered somewhere around 4,300 BC. I don't know the exact year. Um, and it was found in the Mohenjo-Daro city, which is one of the first cities of the Indus Valley civilization. So this seal was a slab of, of stone. And on that stone, there was an inscription, a carving of a figure. And the figure was sitting like this, you know, um, lotus pose. He um, was a male deity sitting and with horns on his head. And crazily enough, this is kind of lewd, but a, a tremendously erect phallus. Now, at first, the belief was, oh, this is just a fertility god. Like all these early shamanistic cultures, they all have fertility gods. And there was archaeology at the time, you know, with like large wombs and, and strong phalluses and even the Egyptian gods holding the scepter, symbolizing virility and power. Like that was there, you know. But there was something weird about this, this icon. Two things. One, the erection was anatomically incorrect. Now, this wasn't um, because of the art form of that era, because we have other um, contemporary pieces, like Kama Sutra stuff, like displaying erections that were perfectly anatomically correct, you know? So there was something about this relief 
that didn't show the erection in the way that you expect it. The erection was presented as an upward moving column. So that was interesting. Secondly, the figure was seated, calm, and seemed relaxed. So you can Google the Pashupati seal. That's P-A-S-H-U-P-A-T-Y-I, sorry. And you can like look at it. The figure is very relaxed and calm. Now, that's kind of um, counterintuitive because like usually when you have a powerful male deity like Baal or Horus, with an erection, they're usually in action. So if not to consummate a marriage, then to smite an enemy. So there's a lot of activity in these male gods. But this one didn't have that. It seemed like they were not about to do anything. They were the opposite. They were just chillaxing, you know? So in that Pashupati seal, it turns out, is the philosophy of yogic meditation, which is there is a psychosomatic force in the body. It's often expressed as a sexual force for most people. And for most people, that's like the most intense experience that they have outside of drugs, right? Like the orgasm motivates so much in society, like people build companies so they can, and it's, it's funny, this obsession with the orgasm, and that's because that vitality um, that you feel is for most people at the height of their like lifetime. Now, an artist might experience a greater degree of that. So an artist is able to take that natural urge to create and create. So a lot of artists talk about that intersection between their sexuality and their creativity. Um, William Burroughs writes great books about writing with an erection on. He says, oh, I have two choices. Either I can go and masturbate and that will kill my art, or I can stay here and try to transmute it into the art, you know? So all sorts of weird theories. Napoleon Hill, the author of Think and Grow Rich, actually has a whole chapter, chapter nine, in his book, Think and Grow Rich, about the power of sex transmutation. He says, I mean, this is a guy who studied a lot of American billionaires and like the 20s. And he said that people don't usually become successful until they're 40. And he said the grand secret is because they're able then to redirect that force. So the idea generally that maybe Western society is catching on to is that there is this psychosomatic force expressing itself sexually and creatively. Now in yoga, the idea then is to harness that force and direct it into even higher and higher levels of expression. So the artist um, is already advantaged when they come to spirituality. Because the artist has likely experienced a lot of things that we're talking about in meditation. That feeling of being so present with their work, that flow state, that sense of bliss, like when you're in that flow state, all that stuff, the artist knows. So the general idea then is that there's a psychosomatic force, we call it Kundalini. And that's actually the name of a goddess. So she's the serpent goddess, and she sleeps yeah, the serpent goddess, you know, here she is, wonderful serpent goddess. And she sleeps at the base of the spine. Actually, fun fact, if you see people with snakes on them, you know they're tantric yoga practitioners. And we'll talk a little bit about that in another lecture. But the cult of the serpent, the idea then is that there is this serpent, she's sleeping um, at the base of your spine. So she's coiled three and a half times around your tailbone. So we call this the root chakra. So, we, you know, we had a workshop on chakras and I'd be happy to um, do that workshop another time. We won't really go into the chakras, but the idea is that there is this force lying dormant at the base of the spine. Now, once we start to practice spirituality, thank you, thank you. Once we start to uh, practice spirituality, we awaken this force and we direct it up the spine. Exactly. That's precisely right. If anybody has seen the um, caduceus of Mercury, it's like the staff with the wings at the top and there are the two snakes. So the earliest version of that image actually appears in uh, 300 AD India, Gupta period India, where you get a tantric picture of that same thing. And the idea is that there are two um, nerves. One is Ida, which goes up the left into the left nostril. And the other is Pingala, which goes up the right into the right nostril that go up the spine. The central column is called the Shushumna. And so around the Shushumna, you have this snake-like motion. And every time the two uh, forces meet, you get a chakra. So chakra is like a confluence of forces. The two forces are opposite. So day and night, masculine, feminine, uh, parasympathetic nervous system, sympathetic nervous system, uh, moving up, moving down, action, um, reaction, you know, all that stuff. That's the duality of life. 
Now we practice uh, physical yoga. It's called hatha yoga. Esoterically speaking, ha means sun. Tha means moon. So when we bring our hands together like this, the esoteric meaning is we're bringing together two opposites. We're bringing together dualities. So maybe you can think mind and body. Oh dear. You can think mind and body. You can think uh, day and night, masculine and feminine, a uh, conscious mind and subconscious mind, any dualities. We're bringing them together. So in yoga, as you sit and you still the mind and you still the body, you start to breathe in a rhythm. And that rhythmic breath starts to change um, the way your brain is physically operating. So the waves change. And there's a lot of cool MRI stuff about um, waking state consciousness deepening into meditative states. When this happens, there's a physiological reaction in the nervous system. In yoga, we describe this. Oh, dear. Give me one second. The, the phone device broke down. Sorry about that. I try to stream this class on a different platform as well. Okay, okay. There we go. There we go. We're back. So the idea then is as you're meditating, it stimulates this force and it moves up the spine and opens up um, these upper chakras. And you have deeper and deeper levels of awareness and understanding. So that's really the ancient kind of conception of meditation. It was all there in the Pashupati seal. Flash forward a couple of centuries, and we're now in about 3,800 BCE India. There was a question that the sages were asking. What happens when you die? People were very interested in answering this question. Problem was, there wasn't really anyone. Welcome back, everyone. There wasn't really anyone who could come back and give you a report. Unfortunately, the thing about death is you seldom get a Yelp review about it, you know, unfortunately. So people said, how do, we, how do we figure out what happens when you die then? Now, the people of the early Indus valleys were very scientific. I mean, they were the first scientists, you know, they were studying nature and all that stuff. And they said, we need to conduct a scientific experiment. So we need to um, repeat the conditions of death, but still be around to see what happens. So they said, okay, death is a few things. One, it's a complete stillness of the mind. Two, it's a complete stillness of the body. And three, it's a complete cessation of the breath. So those are the three conditions of death, right? What is meditation but simulating those three conditions? So if you can perfect, and so that's what the focus became, developing a technique so you could die. Die, but live. Isn't that crazy? That's why when we opened class today, we said, lead us unto, from death unto immortality. Because that's really the lesson here. Your body dies, your mind dies, but not you. And you'll realize that when you die, when you really meditate, you know? <laughs> so that's kind of this philosophy. It's like, hey, um, I can show you, but first you must die. And people are like, ah, no, no. But really, you really do. And that, that whole thing is all around Christianity, you know, like dying and being born to eternal life, um, the resurrection, even Osiris, the Egyptian god, had to get resurrected. I mean, there's that whole thing where you have to first experience death to be able to, you know, and um, I don't know if some of you are familiar with the tarot, but the um, the card death associated to Scorpio. I see Eileen looking at her Rider Waite deck somewhere there. There it is. I love it. Um, that death card is often associated to transmutation, but also sex. It's a Scorpio card, right? So the key word is sex, death, transmutation. It's all the same thing. You know, it's that same psychosomatic energy. Um, that's 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 the whole the whole trip is sex death transmutation. So that being said, that's what um, they discovered in three thousand eight hundred BCE. Yes, and someone here is talking about meditation and building a light body for astral realms. Yeah, we'll talk about that at the end of class if we have some time. But uh, um, that, that's really what it was. So meditation was developed so we could figure out stuff about death. Here are the three takeaways, though, that the seers were able to discover from that experience. And uh, the disclaimer here is you should go and find out for yourself. Don't take anybody's word. But the three claims are this. First, I'm trying to find a way to articulate it from the Sanskrit. Hold on. First, you are not your body or your mind, what you are is the Atman or the soul. The second thing was that the Atman was the only thing that, act, that actually existed. 
there was only there's only one thing in the universe, and that's unfortunately you. You know, um, it's a pretty lonely world, huh? But yeah, it's just you. It's just you. You're the only thing that exists, and that's the second thing. Um, so the that thing that exists, we call it both the Atman and Brahman. Now, Brahman is the name of God or the macrophosophus. I forget the Western word, but it's like the macrocosm, right? The the big quote unquote God. And then there was the soul, which in Christianity is the divinity in you. Now, in a lot of cultures, that divinity, that individualized, you know, the Kabbalists call it the divine spark, but that individualized divinity in a lot of cultures is different from God. God is like the overarching divinity and maybe your spark goes back to God, right? Perhaps. But in this philosophy, there was no difference. That soul was God. And so the formula is Atman equals Brahma or self equals uh, God. So the question then is, if you're looking for God, and if you're looking for yourself, you're going to end up in the same place. You know, there's a Sufi quote, I looked everywhere for God, and I only found myself. I looked everywhere for myself, and I only found God. You know, that's the joke. So the joke is that you can ask yourself two questions in yoga. Who am I? Or what is God? And you will find the same, you will realize the same thing. It's the same entity. So that's the first two realizations. One, you are the Atman. Two, the Atman equals the Brahman, so you are all that is. And three, this world exists as a projection or an emanation of that Brahman. So this world is called Maya, meaning Maya actually means the measurer or that which divides or creates boundaries, right? Another word for her is Mohini. So that's uh, there's a lot of... Uh, kind of metaphors and symbolism that we like to keep it poetic, you know. Mohini in Sanskrit means the deluder, the one who deludes you, right? Exactly. So the illusionary realm around us, it's called Maya. So that's the whole like game. It's like Brahman individualizes as Atman um, and projects a reality and forgets its identity, you know. Um, Maya doesn't actually exist. It is to Brahman what heat is to the fire, if that makes sense. Heat is a property of fire. You couldn't really have the heat without the fire. I mean, we're talking 3800 BCE India now. There's no like other ways to get heat. It's just fire, right? So if you have the fire, you have the heat, but if you have no fire, you have no heat. Similarly, this world does not exist independently of you. So there must be a you and this world is a property of you. So one way to think of this is that the way your world looks um, is the way you are inside, you know? So if there are still oppressors in your world, then something's going on psychologically, you know? That's an important point. Um, and we really live in a different world. Like, I often get accused a lot of uh, being politically ignorant, you know, not being caught up to the political zeitgeist of our time, you know? And the unfortunate thing there is, like, there's nothing you can really say to anyone who is still in that place because that is the reality that they see and keeps getting confirmed for them. You know, there's kind of even... Um, uh, what do you call it? Like a complicity in culture, trying to keep that kind of delusion going. So there is some kind of collective kind of delusion. Once you break out of that, it's kind of hard to convince anyone in that. But your world literally looks different, you know? Um, so that's kind of what you realize. Those are three takeaways from the Upanishadic time, 3800 BCE. Flash forward now um, to, and this is like a tour of yogic history flash forward now to 600 bce the buddha shows up we already talked about that suffering's a thing so that's new now like that's in the dictionary like suffering before that it was really a quest to find out what death was who god was it's very philosophical and it had to do with like um, a priestly elite so not everyone engaged in yoga just a few people who dropped out of society and became philosophers but by the time the buddha showed up he was like no no, no. this is for everyone he took this arcane philosophy and brought it down for everyone to enjoy because everybody suffers, you know? So here we are. Meditation has come down from the mountains of the Himalayas, down into the masses, into the marketplace. Flash forward now. It's 1000 AD India. Times have changed. And one way in which they have changed, it's Kali Yuga now, by the way, and that's a term for the age of darkness. Sure, It comes in. So astronomically speaking, astrologically speaking, things have changed. And the consequence of that is our bodies are denser. 
if you could dig that. Our bodies have become coarser. So our ability to interact with very subtle philosophy and very fine truths has been diminished. So the sages said we need some kind of new philosophy that revitalizes that old dusty yoga stuff, that old man yoga stuff from the past. It's just not going to cut it with the kids these days. You know, like that was really it. Um, people in the marketplace were just unable to meditate like they used to in the good old days. That's when Tantra was born. Now, Tantra, that word, means, I mean, it, 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 it's been really kind of taken up by the West and turned into like a really weird, like, like kind of pervy thing. I don't even, I don't even, I, I feel bad saying that word sometimes because of all the associations it has in the West with like creepy men and women who, under the guise of a yoga studio, like, I don't even want to get into it. But Tantra, that actual word, means weaving. It's, it's the name of a loom or a tool that you use to weave cloth. Now, what are we weaving? We are weaving together many different things, many different philosophies, and integrating it into our daily life. So in Tantra, we say the way to discover, the way out of the body is through it. Back then, they were saying the body, the mind's all illusion, let's not be part of it. But in Tantra, we're saying, no, 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 you have to use that tool. You have to realize that you're incarnated, you're embodied. And so you have to be part of this game. Um, and if you do that, we have a few tips and tricks for you. One of them is Hatha yoga. Hatha yoga is like that physical yoga. So it surprises people when they realize yoga existed for thousands of years in India without any downward dogs. Like yoga had nothing, like there was never any poses. You know, in the Yoga Sutra, which appears around 150 BCE. Oh man, I keep, this, this thing keeps uh, exploding on me. Anyway, so the idea of yoga then, like in the West, when they say, oh, I'm going to a yoga class, they usually mean they're going to, you know, hatha or, or do some poses of yoga. Yeah, they're going to go work out. Um, but that was never part of yoga. Yoga was a very sedentary activity. It wasn't going to get you um, your steps. I can guarantee you that. So in the Yoga Sutra, there are only four things that were said about yoga or, or asana, which is posture. One, sit up straight. Two, choose a place with no insects. Three, um, you must be comfortable. And four, you must be firm. That's all. That's so the, this, you will have your one pose, which is sitting, right? But <laughs> at 1000 AD India, it was like, look, if you sit, you know what's going to happen? You're just going to think. You're going to sit there. Your eyes are going to be closed and you won't be doing any meditating. You'll just be fantasizing. You might look like you're meditating. You know, you might really be cutting a very striking, you're there with your mala, you know, your, your beads and you're sitting there under the tree and you're like, and you can do this for hours. But really what's going on in here, you're thinking, I wonder what I'm going to do with all my yogic powers once I have them. I wonder what my wife's making today. Or, you know, you're just thinking. And so a lot of what people do, and they say it's meditating, right? It's just sitting and thinking. Um, and with occasional moments of breath work that calms them, you know? So meditation has been taken from a tool to understand death and find God and escape suffering and turn into some kind of like like flossing your teeth routine, you know? And it, 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 it's no wonder that it doesn't work for anybody, or at least it works in a very limited fashion. So that being said, in 1080 India, we realized that you couldn't start with meditation. If you just went right into it, um, it'd be really hard. You couldn't sustain it for a long time. And a lot of that was physiological. Like your body would just not be able to sit for long periods of time. Even if you're sitting in the chair, you'll get fidgety. And if you move, What's happening? You're violating one of the rules of death, which is to be completely still. So if you're really going to go on this trip, you have to really learn to keep the body and mind still. But it's hard to do when it's 1080 India and now. You know, so the, the struggle was the same. So they created a system called Hatha Yoga, which was meant to, you know, all these poses were made so that the body can chill out. It, you know, gives your nervous system a chance to, calm down. So the idea was that you would practice asana for at least, you know, three or four years. If now it's six months, I think, but three or four years, you practice it. And then you are ready for step two. So step one, do the postures, no meditation yet, just do the postures. Step two, then you do the breath work. So this is pranayama, 
which is the breathing exercises. Now, pranayama was actually withheld from you until you had done enough asana. The idea is if you gave someone pranayama before they did asana, their body, their nervous system might not be able to handle that influx of energy. And so you think like if you pumped, you know, your house might receive 40 watts of energy. If I pumped 80 watts of energy inside, it's not like the lights will, uh, will be twice as bright. Oh, someone asked, what did yoga look like before the poses? Just meditation, meditation and philosophy. That's really all it was. The poses were preparation for that, you know. So in closing, let me say this. The reason meditation might not be working for you is because you're starting with it. Where in a yoga's life, a yogi's life, you work up to it. You start with asana. You work on the body first. Then when your body is strong and your nervous system is ready for more energy, then the pranayama. After some time of pranayama, your body will be uh, still and you would have brought in a lot of energy through the breath. Now the question is, what are you going to do with that energy? Now we come to meditation. Now you're able to harness that force and concentrate. So in yoga, there are three steps to meditation. The first is dharana. Dharana means to hold to hold in your mind. So yogic meditation is actually very simple. It's just, can you hold something in your mind for 12 seconds? Physiologically, 12 seconds is all it takes, really, of focused attention on something. It can be a lotus, it can be a rose, it can be a mantra, it can be anything. But if you can really be with that thing and devote your entire energy, and you need a certain amount of energy, of course, through pranayama. If you can shoot the energy at that thing, you're doing dharana, which is concentration. So that's step one. Step two is dhyana, which means meditation. Isn't that crazy? Meditation is step two in a three-step process of meditation. <laughs> it's funny, really. Step two is dhyana. Dhyana happens to you. So dharana, you're doing it, you're focusing. Dhyana is when your dharana causes you to slip into an altered state. Um, and a lot of you have had glimpses of that state, of sitting and you're like, it's, it's hard to explain but it's a state of being in the flow. Maybe you're being present or being the witness. It's very blissful and you're in that state. You're in dhyana. 12 seconds of dhyana, of meditation, of holding that. And it's hard to hold that state. I don't know if anybody's trying to lucid dream, but it's funny. Once you're in the dream, you get excited and you come out. <laughs> Once you realize you're having it, you're like, come back into the you that's having it, right? That's the way it is with this um, dhyana. It's very hard to perfect. It's slippery. You get into it and you're like, oh, it's, it's happening. And then you're out. You know, but if you're able to hold that dhyana, then you go into samadhi. Now, I can't speak much about samadhi because it's something I've only experienced in glimpses. Um, but samadhi is a specialized meditative technique in which your body is still, your mind is still, you become cold, your breath stops. For all intents and purposes, you look like you're dead. And there's so many, like, I think Imperial College did one on Sadhguru where they put the... Um, you know, they put him on a life support system uh, uh, to see whether he was dead or alive. And he was brain dead for a couple of uh, minutes, you know. So there, there are yogis that do all these feats and ex uh, demonstrate this samadhi. And if you're in India, you, you see a lot of them by the Gang Ganges, you know, by the Ganga just sitting in samadhi. They waste away. Um, in Ramana Maharshi, a great sage, um, in his case, bugs had eaten away his flesh. And when they found him, there were pockmarks all across his arms. So the bugs were literally eating him alive. You know, but he wasn't there. People would come and they'll put their garlands. Um, you can Google Samadhi, S-A-M-A-D-H-I. Someone asked how to look this up. Or you can read the Yoga Sutra by Patanjali. It's a good text. So let's close with this. Yoga today is a word for a practice. Back then, yoga was an event. Yoga, that word means union. Yukt, the same root word yoke in English. So yoga is when, when, you, when you reach it, when you've succeeded. So yoga is the goal, actually. The practice is called sadhana. So the traditional Sanskrit word for spiritual practice is sadhana. And in the tantric age or third century India up to 12th, 15th century India, that could include a bunch of different things. Yes, like there was sexual rights, like we talked about that sexual energy. There were um, uh, sacred geometry. There was hatha yoga. There was bhakti yoga. 
um, like singing and dancing and art. Like there are all these different ways and everything is kosher. Whether you're on a Christian path or a Buddhist path or you're doing this meditation or that, everything's kosher. Whatever it took for you to get to yoga, it's legit. So that being said, we need to realize that meditation is the flower. If you want the flower, focus on the soil. So that's today's lesson. Like to get into meditation, you must do the preparation. And in yoga, there is a whole holistic system for that meditation. So with that understanding, we can kind of realize where we are and where we're not. If we're struggling to focus in meditation, the answer is more asana. And, and if our focus is being interrupted by discomfort, right? So if you're sitting, knees ache, more asana. Um, if you're sitting and the mind wanders, more pranayama. So in that way, you have these two tools now. Um, and it will take a while, but eventually you'll be able to sit still, completely calm, mind is still, and then you can actually say you're meditating. But until that, you're not yet doing it. So that's all I wanted to convey today. Um, let's now bring the hands over the heart and close our session, taking a nice deep inhale into the, to the belly. I'm going to chant an om. You're welcome to join me or not, or chant any sound you like. It's three syllables, ah, ooh, um, held for three or four beats each. So you're welcome to join me. We're going to inhale to om now. May all beings everywhere be free of suffering and may all our actions contribute to this grand goal. Thank you for coming today. Namaste. Dear friends, thank you so much. That is our official end to the class. I will hang around for as long as you need to answer questions. So feel free. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you would talk about the concept of Leela. Mm. Yeah, I've been really interested in that. And I'm still, I'm struggling with pleasure because I've felt some, I've been meditating for a while, um, working on asanas. Um, but I felt some of the detachment and I'm just curious, like, how can you relate those concepts? So Leela, mm-hmm. pleasure and the detachment from meditation. Yeah. Like just being in the world and participating in pleasurable things, mm-hmm. um, as worship, I guess. Nice. Nice. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. So I, I like that idea of Leela, right? Because the word means play or dance or, or theater. Um, and yeah. this life is called Shiva Leela, which is the divine play or the dance. And, uh, you know, there's an important story that spirituality is often described as this love affair between the god Shiva and his wife, Parvati, or Shakti. And um, the, the, the story is this, like their lovers are so in love with each other, they can't get enough of each other. But every, you know, couple has their tiffs and fights. So they're sitting and one day Shiva is like trying to explain the Vedas, trying to, you know, to Parvati. And Parvati gets bored. She goes, dude, this is so dry. Like all you want to talk about is philosophy. All you want to do is meditate. Fuck this shit. I, I, I want to play, you know. And so she's like, I'm going down to the world. So he's like, fine, you're no better than a common fisherwoman. Go down to the world, frolic in your nonsense. You know, she goes down. And then they start to miss each other. They realize they're incomplete with one another. So spirituality, she is down here. She is the kundalini, right? He is in the crown. And they're both trying to meet in the middle in the heart. So, you know, spirituality, we awaken here. So he's coming down, she's going up. So at any given time, there are these two forces acting. One is the manifesting current, which is our desire to be in Lila, to be in the game, to taste and play. Um, we, we did come here for a reason. We came here to be embodied, right? So the idea is that this is a school and our spirits took on a human birth. In the Yoga Sutra, it says that even gods need to go through the school. 
So if you really perfect your yoga in the next life, you can become the God, God, you know, the God of the wind or whatever, but um, you're never going to be free. You're still going to be in karma until you come back, take a human birth, probably a very high birth, very yogic birth, and then get out, you know? So a lot of us we come back, you know, we come back. Um, that being said, um, the game is this first you come and you fully get involved in Shivalila. You forget your, to, to really enjoy it. You must forget that you, you know, um, you think of it this way. You go to a movie and you uh, need to invest in the characters. You know, the movie's not real, but the movie would be really boring. If you just sat there and said, that's special effects. I know that's not real. You nudge the guy next to you. Like you believe this, nah, you know, it wouldn't be fun. You got to invest in the character. So in that way, your life is like that. You've come, you've invested in these characters that you've played many different ones throughout many different lives. Um, and so that's the Leela. That's the game. Now, there's a return journey. It's a two-way ticket, you know. Um, once you've played and you've had enough of Samskara or Leela, um, then there's another play. And that's the play of coming back. There is this U shape. So you come down, you're forgetting, you're forgetting your play. And then this is the hardest part because you're kind of in both worlds, you know. Once you're here, it's like, oh, the water is so pleasurable. You know, like, like little simple things. You're no longer in the traditional game of pleasure. Pleasure is kind of taken on a different, so that's the upward swing. But in the middle, it's like we're kind of caught between wanting to live our lives and then realizing that there's more to life and we should transcend, right? Am I kind of getting that right? That kind of half in, half out. And, you know, the thing is, it's like yoga requires that you get everything you want in your life before real progress can be made. So the yoga, the meditation will empower you to go and get the things that you still need. So like you might be here in this life, like um, I needed to, and this is in my personal experience, I needed to do the rock star thing. I don't know why, but I needed to come and I needed to play guitar and I needed the whole like works. You know, I wanted the like groupies and cocaine. Like, I don't know why it was awful, um, but it was awesome when I was doing it. Like touring was great. All that was great. But then I finished with it. Only then could I go on with my meditation, you know? So maybe there's something still left to do um, and you have to go and do that. So that's the Leela. But at the same time, you can operate on two levels. So you can um, do that while still being the witness. Yes, there's something still left to learn. There's, um, you know, there's even that quote, if you think you're so spiritual, go and hang out with your parents for a weekend. You know, like that whole thing, it's like, the, the karma, you're here because the karma is not really done yet. There's still something that pushes your buttons. And the only way to discover what, what is pushing your buttons is to go and actually play the game, play the lila, live the life, have the pleasures, you know? So that's one thing to say. The second thing is that pleasures naturally refine themselves. So you might notice that like, like someone with a lot of money, right, first starts collecting things and they get bored of things and then they start collecting experiences like restaurants, they want to eat, and they want to like have lots of sex and orgies, all that stuff. And then they go, no, no, now I want to collect culture. And they like go to fine dining and, and they go to music concerts. And, you know, it, the pleasure seems to be scaling up. So soon, um, the deepest pleasures, the things you most want to do will be like the spiritual things, you know, eventually. But um, all things in due course. So the snake sheds its skin at the rate at which the snake sheds its skin, you know. So if something is still pleasurable, um, as far as possible, don't suppress it. Don't move away from it. Finish with it. That's the tantric part, path, you know? Go and, like, if you, if you have an addiction to peanut butter, go and buy a peanut butter jar, eat the whole thing. You'll never want to have peanut butter again. You know, you have an awful bellyache. You might die, but, you know, you'll, you'll be done with it. <laughs> so that's, that's an important thing. Um, did that get there with the question? Yeah, that, that's great. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. I mean, sometimes it's like very broad, my responses, I'm trying to stream. No, I got it. <laughs> good, good, good. I love that word though, Leela. Mm. Um, oh, it's so beautiful. Christina. Yeah, oh, I love that. Yeah, it's not the case though, like the vibration. It's like, ugh, it's so beautiful. Someone's the experiences we create together. What's that? The experiences we create together. Right. Because, I mean, it's just me looking at me, looking at me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, the word for enlightenment in yoga is kaivalya, which is aloneness. 
it translates to aloneness, which I think is so poignant. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, I'm gonna go. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Nish. Absolutely, Aileen. Welcome. Just welcome to your first day of yoga class. It was really good. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> we do Wednesdays and Fridays at 1.11 p.m. PST, asana. So that's the asana class. All right. Yeah, yeah. I'll be there. I can't come Wednesday, but I'll be there Friday. Of course, of course. Bye. Farewell, Aileen. Oh, wait. Um, Are you going to record the session on Wednesday? Yes, I will. Cool. I'm Can you send that? email with the session if you need it. Thank you. And Christina, I send, I record most of my sessions in case you want to like revisit it. So you can shoot me your email and I'll be happy to send you any recorded sessions that you miss. Um, and thank you so much. You kind of helped me check, check um, you kind of helped check me realize the external world isn't as scary as I think, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, right? There's something really comforting. Here, let me take a picture. Forget. I keep doing this, like I'll close the Zoom room and there'll be emails in the chat and I'll lose them all. <laughs> so don't worry, I got it, I took a picture. But yeah, isn't that crazy that it's, everything is so much kinder than we make it out to be? We're like safe. <laughs> Sending you so much love, Christina. Have a lovely rest of your night. Thank you for coming. <laughs>